when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. What's good, Internet? It's January 31st, 2023, and you are listening to Waypoint Radio, episode 538. I'm your host, Rob Zachney. I'm joined by Ricardo Contreras. Hello, hello. Patrick Klepek. Hello. And Renata Price. Howdy. Uh, so, uh, thought today we would start off with Ren. Uh, Ren, you've been playing some Hitman Freelancer, which is uh, a a new mode, and you know, Hitman's like I'm always like this close to being like I should really get back into Hitman. I should really like do all those contracts <laughs> and kill all those people and experiment with all the the ways of killing the people. Mm-hmm. And then I get choice paralysis, and I never do any of that. Uh, but tell me of Hitman Freelancer. So Hitman Freelancer is the newly added roguelike mode for uh, what is now called Hitman World of Assassination. Uh, Hitman 3 is no longer the name of the video game. They rebranded it. Uh, and basically, if you if you get the current version, you get all three, whatever. That's why they rebranded it. It's because it's a, it's a package deal. Uh, and Freelancer is effectively a roguelike mode where you are going through a series of connected contracts trying to root out the members of a syndicate. Uh, over the course of like a campaign. Uh, and those contracts are all connected by um, a set, like a, a unified, like ideal MO. Um, the targets are all random. So it's not like you are not going after, you know, the target from that mission, right? You're, you're in the game's normal 21 maps, but you are going after random people in those maps. Uh, the framing devices that like the syndicates have spread their uh, control so thoroughly that like anyone could be a member of the syndicate. Real quick, are the same yeah. narrative events that happen in the backdrop of these levels? Are they still like firing as you go? Or are you seeing yes. the same stuff? Okay. So there is still like the the clock is still ticking uh, mm-hmm. in terms of like where characters are moving and when. Um which, I mean, here's the thing, the clock isn't, the, the the cool thing about the mode is that, like, the clock has never just been for your targets. The clock has always been for all of these people simultaneously. And so I think that, like, Freelancer would extremely reward knowing these maps really intimately, uh, which is something that I have found myself struggling with as someone who does not know these maps super intimately and has to be, like, all right, I got to find some fucking way to get over there based on this mission's weird objectives. Also, I don't have a gun. I lost my gun last mission because I got killed, and so I don't have a gun, and I have to find a way to shoot this guy, and I don't have a silenced pistol. And it's just this, like, trying to find the minimum viable assassination uh, in these situations where you are without tools, and occasionally, like, without the things you need to complete your objectives. 
was, it just seems like you're playing this uh, a mode that was <laughs> like hit hitman fans see, always want di- another reason to play a hitman yeah. map and you, you are jumping into this without the thousand hours of ingrained <laughs> uh understanding of these maps and ai placements in a way that probably uh makes that friction a little more apparent uh, which is if you had that institutional knowledge which is fine but it is also worth noting the friction is intentional something that the devs have said is that each so each like syndicate right has a couple of bonus objectives has like a like a dozen or so or 10 or so bonus objectives that you can complete over the course of your assassinations right one of the things they say is that like this is what the this is what the person hiring you wants you to do there's a good chance that might not be possible or not a good chance, but like there's a chance that that objective may not actually be possible. So I was doing one mission and it was like kill a target by having them slip in water uh, or getting killed by a water canister. And the dude I was supposed to kill was on the other side of the fucking map. I was not going to be able to get that dude over to a water canister. And so at that point it becomes like, okay, cool. What can I make do with? Um, and so it's deeply, deeply improvisational. Um, and is, is, is really leaning into those aspects of the game. And I think like the friction is cool. The, the mission where I was like looking at all the objectives and like being like, okay, actually I think I might just be fucked here. I'm going to pull out a gun and shoot a guy and then walk away. Um, and you know what? That worked. It was the right decision. It was the correct decision. I shot the guy, I cleared the cameras and I walked into the building and like, Normal Hitman levels do not encourage you to play like that. Uh, There is usually, like, you're always looking for the most intricate possible kill, and this asks you to use all of your tools. Yeah, this is, so I I can see this kind of being a relief from, yeah, like, Hitman foregrounds all the different ways, you know, you could have done this. Like, you, you do the first, like, uh naive playthrough right and even there they're giving you some ideas about how to do stuff and then the minute you do that it's like well what if you did this one what if you been what if you like uh poisoned his champagne wearing a butler's outfit hmm and it does like flag when those opportunities are open you're sort of left to puzzle out which is like a really cool thing about the game but also brought my my progress to a complete screeching halt because it did feel like oh i'm I am now trying to like I I want to go through this and realize the uh the possibility that was baked in here. Uh they're sort of they're signposting me towards. And I could see it being kind of a relief to just be like, uh, I need to just real quickly like figure out a way to kill this guy. Uh and by any means necessary. Yeah, and like sometimes you get like uh, a really cool situation, other times you get a really weird one. Right before the pod, I had a uh, mission where I needed to kill a guy with poison and then kill a second target. I spawned feet away from both of them, and I was like, hell yeah, it's going to be an easy mission. Walk over, poison the one dude with my syringe. I get the bonus money. Hell yeah. I turn over, and I'm like, let me let me scoot this body away before... So anyone else walks over and I didn't do that fast enough, even a little bit. Uh, and a man walked directly over to me and was like, Hey, what's going on here? And so I whipped out my pistol, fired two shots at him and then tried to go shoot the other target through a hole in a fence that was right next to me, put three rounds in him, but wasn't enough to kill him. And then was like, uh, and then was just fall- fallen upon by the entire base of people. And like, that's the other thing is that you, this is not a normal hitman mission where you can restart. 
you are not restarting this mission if you fuck up killing that guy. You are, if you fuck up killing that guy, you gotta get out of there. You gotta find a way out of that location, like, as soon as possible. And in that way, it's like, the improvisational aspects of Hitman are just so much more interesting uh, when this is the case. Uh, and also when your tools are so incredibly limited. Um, the... Like, you can bring weapons onto missions, but in terms of, like, tools you're bringing, in Hitman, normally, you can be like, all right, give me the syringe, give me the rat poison, give me the garrote, give me the coin. And here it's just like, all right, you have five spaces in your inventory, and a rifle takes up five of them, so you really, hey, bud, you should probably think this one through. And, like, it's really sick. That sounds awesome. Uh, Sounds like a very good reason to return enter uh the the world of assassination <laughs> um so i guess you know speaking of entering other worlds kato you you've you visited an alternate universe uh last week or a couple weeks ago um but mm-hmm. then you informed us before the podcast that you're not really that familiar with the primary universe as much is, is yeah that, is that what i'm getting <laughs> okay so you so you are literally a like Guy who only knows the Meiji Restoration yeah. Yakuza series. <laughs> going playing playing Yakuza Zero. I'm getting a lot of like a Dragon Ishin vibes from this. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh so yeah, I, I went and was able to get a preview for like a Dragon Ishin, which is the newest um in the Yakuza series, which I believe in Japan is just called Like a Dragon, but it got localized to Yakuza over here. Um, but so like, this is just a, um, yeah, like Meiji Restoration era, I believe, as far as I, I don't actually know the exact dates of the Meiji Restoration, but it seems like it's the right time because there's like early guns are being introduced to Japan. Your character actually can uses a handgun along with his katana in like this twirling gun uh, sword mode, which is my favorite because actually uh, pretty agile. Um, yeah, I but, played a Final Fantasy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Gunblade. Um, but uh, the setup is uh, essentially that you're um, you you're a, you're a Ryu, right? It's like the same character model. It's probably meant to be his ancestor, but I, they didn't give us that that information. But you know, I'm not sure they are meant just to be like, ancestors. I think they are the guys. They're like, just I the guys. Literally <laughs> AU stuff, where it's like, yeah. hey, what if what all if, your favorite Yakuza guys exactly were, were over here in the instead? <laughs> yeah. Um, and you're you're coming from a uh, a town which was attacked by this. Uh, um, a specific group of people that has like a specific fighting style that you, then you learn in order to infiltrate that group and you know figure out who killed like your family or whatever. Um, but you're coming in. Um, the the preview that I got was coming in uh, at chapter three, which is where I'm like just now getting to like the trials to join that group. Um, and you know it's it yeah like you meet um what's his face. What's what's his like the 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 guy who um um uh Luke Skywalker fuck Mark Hamill. <laughs> Mark Hamill yeah the guy who Mark Hamill voiced in the original like Yakuza PS2 games um oh uh, back when they had that huge they were like we're yeah, making yeah, yeah. this is Grand Theft Auto but from a but Japanese, from Japanese developer. developer yeah um Majima is there like almost immediately uh 
uh, you know, being his weird self. Uh, and like play, 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 play wise, it seems like very familiar, right? Like you're in this town, you're in the, you see like the map of the town, you can go kind of anywhere in this area. And like every like couple of blocks, there'll be a random group of enemies that you're going to have course. to fight. You know, there's outlaws, there's, um, uh, um, there'll be like, there are a couple moments where, uh, because it looks like you're tough, people will just assume you're a cop. <laughs> um, which we haven't actually, we're not actually anyone of any repute at the beginning, but it's like, you seem like you can uh, force someone into an agreement because you have a sword. Uh, figure out this this uh, this this riddle, and I, I get to figure out who stole the last uh, mochi bun. Uh, by figure, it's like a it's like a one of these people only tells lies type of riddle uh, situation. So there's like your requisite kind of like weird goofiness alongside the very serious, like I'm coming to get revenge for my family story. Uh, it feels very much like of the Yakuza, which I've, I've watched a fair bit of like let's plays of people playing it. It feels very much like the same in the, in that spirit, right? Like it's still like I can go bet on chickens racing, uh, as one of the, me- I, there's the, there's obviously a, um, um, uh, karaoke mini game, right? Like, there's all the same sort of like swings from the main story can be kind of serious, but like, there's a lot of goofiness in this world, and it felt like I've I haven't touched a lot of these games. I played like Yakuza Zero a tiny bit, but um, you know, uh, sometimes people have noted that earlier uh in the series the combat has felt kind of um. What's the word for it? Like staccato or like too a little too stilted and like they get better as they go along. And like this one felt like pretty fluid as far as like a brawler goes, especially when using the like my favorite was using the combo gun and sword where you're basically like shooting, swiping, twirling around, shooting, swiping, twirling like in like a ballet of death. It's actually really it was really fun. Um so the yeah. JRPG combat that was just a one-off. That's not. Yes. That's not replacing. Okay, no. I, see. I see. And so, like, this is the this is the thing because, like a dragon, people thought like, okay, so like a dragon will be the shoot-offs mm-hmm. that are RPGs, but like a dragon is actually the series name for it all. And they're just switching. They're like, okay, now we're people are good enough. To, we'll we'll make the swap over to using like a dragon um, in the West as well as in Japan. But I think it's gonna cause a little confusion. Which this one, people will be like, "So this is another RPG?" It's like, no, this is another Yakuza, straight up. Well, well, and this is like, this is a remake. Like the Like a Dragon thing is a recent switch they made with the direction of that series, right? Like that is, uh, whereas this is this is remaking a game they made a while ago. Um, so and one like, of the ones that didn't come out here, right? Like Yakuza becoming a worldwide right sort of franchise in which all the games are being released out here is a relatively recent phenomenon, you know, of the last five years or so. So um, there's at least a handful of those that didn't make it over here. Uh, I think this is one of them. Uh, Yeah. But overall, it seems like that same vibe of, like, a mix of, like, real drama and then, yes. like, sh- like, sheer, unhinged, goofy comedy. Yeah. Yeah, especially in, like, all the side stuff is, like, where, oh, like, yeah. a lot of the comedy sits. And, like, you know, Majima as a character is kind of ridiculous and over the top. It's very much in that vein of, like, 
uh, uh, gangster drama, which is in like a totally different era, right? Where like the stakes are kind of different. This gang is revered in the same way that the Yakuza kind of is almost, but like also is kind of, they're also kind of actually the cops. It's kind of a weird, you know, there's an interesting sort of, um, parallel there to uh how the yakuza run and i think this is partially some of those origins like historically as well um but yeah it seems really interesting like it's it got it it was interesting enough that like i went back and played some of zero over time the to weekend. play nine of these games yeah exactly uh, <laughs> I was like, you know what yeah. <laughs> what is this? what is going you know on what? over here i think i'm just yeah. gonna casually get into the yakuza games which are famous for being short uh-huh. and just like packed full of story not much else to do Kyle, is, you go into one one preview honestly, event and be like, I'm going to just get into Yakuza now, aka I'm gonna play this for 90 first, minutes and never touch the series again. <laughs> the first like the first like hour is like 45 minutes of cutscenes in Yakuza Zero. Let's be real. Like I was I was like watching uh, They're all the they're all like intro. 70 <laughs> yeah, hour yeah. I mean, you know, I'm I was deeply charmed by Yakuza Zero. I played that, you know, six or seven hours when it when it came out and then these games just come out so right. <laughs> rec- I'm ha- ha- I'm, you know, <laughs> happy for you Yakuza fans. Keep feasting. <laughs> I'm not going to be one of you. I will just look from afar yeah. and be happy for you. I mean, my pace of going through these games is like once every year, I'm like, I should pick up that where I left off in judgment. <laughs> and I do. Uh, I'm yeah. like, they, they give you little chat recaps at the start of every single thing that you do. And you're like, oh, yeah. I remember that guy. I remember that sad thing that happened. And then, yes, it's absolutely off to the next ridiculous, like, bullshit thing. Um, I I am predisposed to, like, be super high on this because, like, one of my favorite, uh, like, anime miniseries when I was growing up was uh, uh, Roni Kenshin Trust and Betrayal, which was, like, the bloody as hell dark, like, origin story for Kenshin uh, (laughs) in sort of a one-off series. Uh, that's all against this backdrop. We don't need to talk about what's the cre- some of the creatives <laughs> behind. Uh, the <laughs> uh, don't fucking don't fucking remind me. I had a goddamn Rurouni Kenshin wall scroll as a kid. Burning that now. <laughs> think uh, now, this was my introduction to Kenshin. So I was like, oh my "You're God. telling me there's a whole series like this?" <laughs> No, there was not. No, there was absolutely not a whole series uh, like like Trust and Betrayal, uh, which which was like entirely about his days as a uh, assassin uh, before he like turned good. But yeah, like it was it always seemed like cool setting. And uh, like this game definitely evokes that in ways that uh, I find, you know, I do enjoy these games every time I play them. Like you're telling me, you're telling me a set one during the during the restoration <laughs> yeah. or just just for it? Sure, absolutely, sign me up. Well, they always come to Game Pass, right? So even if you're never going to commit to playing these games all the way through, at least you can sort of count on at some point this one will show up on on Game Pass as the as the series kind of historically has, and Rob will get his little. Six hour treat, a uh, little discussion on the podcast, and then never play it again. But, no, but no, dream no, about a world I'll, where, where I'll play it over the holidays, like a year right. or two later. Right. <laughs> uh, if you get a holiday, you need you can, that's not even guaranteed for you anymore, Rob. That's that's the bleakness of life. That's true. Now we we live. <laughs> you can just be you can be decorating your tree and being like, 
my allergies are acting up, and then your light, your whole vacation is ruined. I dodged it again. My mom got it a second time from you know a lot of you know life these days. Depending on you know your risk calculus is like getting to a big event so you can hopefully enjoy that big event, and then crossing your fingers outside of that big event. And it's my mom got sick, got COVID a second time, and not. What was her big event? We had a wedding. Um, Uh. So like you know you go to a wedding and you're just sort of. You know, throwing caution <laughs> to the wind on that front. Um, uh, and yeah. Uh, yeah, my mom came out of it with COVID and I I did not. Maybe I, they need to test my blood. Like, I don't know. I, maybe I, I, I hold some sort of cure because it doesn't make or any sense. Or she didn't get it at the wedding. My mom doesn't do anything. <laughs> I suppose my mom could have, it could have blown in from the outside, but my mom is probably uh, not. Okay. Hermit, yeah. Very hermit like. <laughs> just, just unlucky then. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. All this discussion of uh, like Meiji era Japan made me think about, well, sort of the the opening of Japan uh, at the at the hands of uh, American gunboats uh, during the Perry expedition, and that sets me up for a little pivot to Ultimate Admiral Dreadnought. Now, write that down. Did he write that line down? It was trash. That's right off the dome. Wow. Just, you couldn't hear me stumbling through that it. And, uh, like, <laughs> like, where stepping is he on going with this? Where is he it? going with this? You, did you also uh, play uh, the the last, um, uh, what was it? The fucking Phoenix Wright game? Not Phoenix Wright. Great oh, Detective. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, same, same exact time. Should, yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, so I've been playing uh, Ultimate Admiral Dreadnought. Uh, which is, well, it's what it sounds like. It's, so Ultimate Admiral before was like a tall ship sailing game. And we know I established that like I tall. love tall ships. Yeah, I love the yeah, tall I'm ships. Like, I'm, I'm all about <laughs> we that. Know I, I like that game. Uh, I think the there were some real rough edges uh, to it, especially like every single time they were like, you know what you need to do? I'll bet you bought this game about like tall ship combat so you could do weird little like land missions with like small parties of Marines and sailors. And the answer was no, I did not buy that game for that. And every time I had to deal with that, I hated it. Uh, Ultimate Admiral uh, Dreadnought is a vastly different game uh, or sorry. It's Ultimate Admiral Dreadnoughts because uh, there are many, Multiple. a prodigious many. amount. <laughs> <laughs> Cannot be contained to a single knot. <laughs> I shall not. <laughs> so... It's a really interesting game, and there are still some rough edges. Rough edge number one. You enter it, and it's like, the first thing you see is, like, Naval Academy. And you're like, cool, yeah, I'll I'll go do the tutorial, like, learn what's up here. 58 missions uh, in the Naval Academy. Now, it turns out it is not, like, necessarily a tutorial. That It's a little bit, like... Teaching game game concepts, but also there's like a lot of challenge missions in the Naval Academy. But uh, the thing that it foregrounds immediately is that before each of these like Academy missions, they want you to build your battleship. Another little quirk about me, I tend to hate shipbuilding, but I hate shipbuilding in like 4X strategy games where it's like you just want to like command an empire and they've got you, yeah. So Ren hopefully dropped a little screenshot in here. Oh my god! They've got you customized. You do not need to get this far in the weeds, but you can. But you do not need to. But you can. <laughs> Did uh, you? 
I did not because I was like I was moving through it. I was making the big decisions. I was not uh, as as Ren has pulled out here. There's a screen where you can be dialing in the exact thickness of turret armor. My God. Uh, yeah. You can be choosing the exact caliber of the guns. There's there's all sorts of like little little thing. I wonder if you can control like the slope of some of the uh, armor facings as well. But anyway. <laughs> no, I'm, I didn't touch any of that stuff as Rob wonders if there's a deeper, deeper level of customization. <laughs> but the, the thing that is cool here, and it is cool. Uh-huh. Is that <laughs> someone off. someone really you trying okay, to convince Rob? you something is cool? It's like, guys, th- it's cool. I'm just I'm just saying it's it's cool. Tell us what's cool, Rob. What's cool? All right. So the shipbuilding like customization thing, what they're laying out in the tutorial is first like the 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 trade-offs uh that that are inherent to you know, it like there's a lot of like uh three axis trade-off systems and naval ship buildings uh no different where you can like you can have heavily armored um you can have like speed or you can have firepower but you can't have all three so which ones are you going to trade um this is the core of what you're doing is sort of like figuring out what what trade-offs you're going to make as you build the ship uh but the other thing where this gets really interesting what it ties into is that when you are in combat and it's a little like you're watching little miniature battleships, like, you know, tootling around and uh, exchanging shots. But if you look at the odds to hit the things that affect it are like bigger targets are easier to hit. Obviously uh, smaller ones are, are trickier. Um, it's also affected though, by a lot of things like how much gun smoke is floating around your ship from its own guns uh, how bad is the water splashing around from the shell impacts near the target that are making it hard to see? Um, and so you begin to learn that engaging different target types requires completely different, like, specifications. And the real, and I've not even gotten into this part of the game, but like in the campaign, what you're designing effectively are fleets. You're not just designing individual like ships for like special missions. You were designing fleets that are going to fight complementarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the things you realize, uh, like I was doing this last night, it was a really tough mission. You needed to design a battleship that could survive an attack by six torpedo boats. And I was like, that doesn't seem that hard. Cause like they're small, just like swat these things away. But if you can't hit them, you can't survive. Like it doesn't, they will just roll up right. on you. They will shoot you with torpedoes and you will just sink. Uh, so I kept going back to the drawing board, trying to dial in. What are the exact like weapons I should have uh, for this, for this engagement? And it was like finding this exact mix of uh, like rapid fire light weapons that still could hit hard enough that like when they did tag one of these little fuckers, um, it actually like took hard damage. Mm. Ren, you look at something. Yes. So I have, I have yeah. some questions, Rob. So I'm, I'm, I've sent a couple of images. And so I'm looking. There's a lot of like cool locational damage stuff going on, huh? Oh, yeah. Um, there's two health bars, structure and float. That's 
there's a lot happening here. Man, if this game didn't wasn't like this, I would play it. What do you mean like is it wasn't like this? <laughs> I'm always saying about things I'm interested in. I, I just, this, if this thing just wasn't like, like this, this yeah. I would be I would be very into it. If we took I'm telling we my took, children all the time, if you we were took, just not like this, I could love you more. Fifteen <laughs> sis if we took if we took five systems away, I think I could do it. I think I could do. I looked at that world map and I saw the word politics. I saw the words. Uh, I saw shipbuilding. I saw research, and I was like, "This is." Don't we not have? To, you don't have to engage in many of these systems, isn't this? Isn't well, the, they are core of the campaign game. But Ren, fifty-eight missions in the Naval Academy. <laughs> fifty-eight. I played for like eight hours this weekend and did like ten missions. It's it's so much fun. Uh, but it does sort of highlight some of the issues that have come up with this, like developers' previous games, which can be like some missions are not really well balanced and they don't seem to work like the way they're supposed to. For instance, one mission is, um, oh, you need to learn how to chase down another fast ship and and bring it to battle. Uh, so you're going to be up against an enemy destroyer and you need to uh, build out a fast light cruiser that can sort of maintain contact with it and kill it. Uh, the light, cr- the destroyer you're up against in that mission sails at 36 knots. That is like a speedboat. <laughs> the fastest shit, like the fastest cruiser I've ever managed to build is like sails at 24 knots. Like if the mission starts and the thing just like, drives away and all it's just like you need to chase it and kill it it's like i can't and i spent like i spent like most of like not most a significant amount of my time with mm. this game though trying different builds to like try to figure out how can i make ship go fast how can i make big cruiser yeah strip that way 36 30 <laughs> I stripped as much weight as I could. <laughs> I reduced the ship's beam. It's 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 width. Hmm. I did everything. I, but there's also as you do these things, sometimes ships get more expensive because at this point now you are testing the limits of the design from another direction. So right. it's becoming like more expensive to build. That's kind of how they um, this is how they balance these challenges is that like you have X amount of uh, weight that you can like. Well, the ship. The the weight is variable depending on like the the specs you put on the ship, but ultimately they get you with money, right? Like the ship has to cost a certain amount of money to to equip and arm and, and crew, and so if you exceed that, for instance, by like pushing a design past its natural limits, uh, it'll just cost too much. So I was trying to figure out like how to how to make a cruiser do like thirty seven knots. There was there was no answer. Apparently, this is like a notorious mission going back to the game's early access days that they still haven't ironed out. The destroyer isn't supposed to do 36 knots. It's supposed to like top out at like 25. And the only real solution for this mission is not build fast ship. It is to build a ship covered in guns so that when the mission starts, your opening volleys just have a high enough hit like hit chance that you just blow the fuck out of the thing like before it can basically get up to speed. Right. Um, and like little issues like that, like sort of crop up in various places uh, in this game. There are some places where I'm like, the, like this targeting can't be right. Like the, the torpedo boat mission was fun, but like 
even at short ranges, my ship could not lead targets. And I was like, I don't think anyone would be this bad consistently. I have a few questions. Yeah. Um, the first of which is, um, so I was looking at, uh, oh, Jesus, I'm so sorry. I lost my question. Christ. I hope he comes back because I'm eager to be a resource <laughs> about Dreadnought and pre-Dreadnought combat. Oh, that's what it is. What is this game's histo- actual like n- historical set? Like, what what are we? What are we? What what kind of ships are we working, working with? What era of ship are these? I'm modern so- ships? I'm sorry. I thought it was in the title, but it occurs to me not everyone knows the importance of the term dreadnought. So, <laughs> uh, thanks, Rob. When you think of like a World War II era battleship, yes, those are dreadnought style battleships. Mm. Uh, they basically take their their same inspiration from the HMS Dreadnought, uh, which was the first battleship of its kind laid down by the Royal Navy. Ah. So when you think about like tall ships, it's all like tons of cannons sticking off the side of a ship. And then by World War II, like you got battleships that are uh basically just carrying massive gun turrets uh that fire you know shells across like you know 20 30 miles at other ships uh so how do you get between those two points and that's kind of where this game is set this game covers like there are some one-off missions that are like the civil war because that's where you have uh the confederacy and the union both fighting ironclads um but where this game like is really set is toward the tail end of like primitive steam powered warships into world war one era, because this is a period of like tremendous technological change. And uh, basically what you are specking out as you sort of contemplate these fleets is what do I think warfare is going to look like what what is the what is the tactical doctrine i am building for and preparing to fight against and so that's kind of that's kind of where this is coming from and it does get really interesting because the technologies did change tremendously during those times like uh you know when you think about there's a mission i was playing last night where it's like what if the uss maine wasn't blown up before the spanish-american war and you know, this is a famous incident that precipitated the war, but the the thing that gets lost is like the main was an outdated ship. It it was a weird little thing with like some big gun turrets. It had been like sort of a world class warship just like, you know, 10, 15 years earlier. But by the time it was destroyed, like it was it was kind of crap. Um and it the the change happened fast. And so you're you're also kind of balancing how do I how do I kind of repurpose old tech? Like what missions do I assign the stuff I've got like hanging around? Um, what do I do with this old gear uh, as, as the battle, as the needs of the battlefield are changing? Yeah, I was, I was just wondering all this because like a thing, I guess I didn't know. I did. I had not internalized about like ship to ship combat in, in this particular era is the fucking crazy ranges. These fights are happening over. I am I am watching a video of this game and I'm seeing like shots go like four or five kilometers like you are not even looking at your target. If you are there is someone telling you where to shoot and then you are shooting, which is 
it is a scale of combat that did not really click until I was seeing it just now. Right. And five kilometers. And the weird thing is, like, as you get toward the like World War One tech for like battleships, five kilometers is effectively point blank. Like that is that is nothing Jesus. because like what they are shooting uh, by the end is they are shooting um, effectively like almost at the horizon. Um, so this is something I didn't realize myself, uh, but it becomes a really important thing when you play this game. I always wondered why ships of this era had the ridiculously like pyramidal structure with the huge like masts on each end because they're not sailing ships anymore. Why do they have these like absurd like mast structures uh, on each end of the ship? Because those were the observation platforms. They needed to be ridiculously high so they could get above the gun smoke and the exhaust of the ship so that you could have dudes up there telling the gun crews where their shots were falling. And so you would be up there in the middle of like these insanely dangerous like engagements, freezing your ass off. <laughs> uh with binoculars like tr- like trying to gauge uh the fall of these shells from like 10 15 miles out and this is where um like ren you you pulled a screenshot of like how target calculations happen interesting details that come up is um if you have a ship with a bunch of different gun calibers on it the spotting crews may begin having trouble recognizing the fall of their shots versus other stray shots from other from other like gunners and that affects targeting because they no longer know they can't court they can't tell like their gun crew okay you were long or you're short on that target mm-hmm. uh and so that's another thing you start thinking about is if this ship is like engaging in combat uh based on what i have equipped it with how clean a picture of the battle are the observation right. crews going to get? How how significant is a is a single shot hitting a ship? Like how 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 much does that for for? I mean, I guess it depends on the weapon, but like on average, like what what is the significance of of you taking a hit? So it's so you mentioned there's the two the two damage meters there's yeah, the yeah. the location yeah. based damage uh it could be nothing it could be like a shell at long range hits like the thickest armor plating and basically just like bounces off the ship like deflects <laughs> mm-hmm. that might be nothing it might be that like it just chips at some of the armor uh but doesn't really doesn't really do much maybe you'll see it like a light penetration of the armor and you'll get new like word that one of several hundred crewmen were killed um, so it won't really affect the the working of the ship. Might also be you just get unlucky and the shot lands. For instance, this happened last night. Uh, fighting those little torpedo boats. Um, there's a vulnerable window where you have to take the torpedo from like the magazine and put it in the tube to fire it. And it turns out <laughs> of a shot just like tags the torpedo launcher as they are being ready to fire. Uh there's a good chance all the torpedoes will go at once on the deck. Uh, and you will just see that th- the the key, the uh, stern of that thing light up like a Roman candle. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that gets really scary about uh, Dreadnought Combat, this was kind of the the theory about the, the, the all big gun battleship, was that if you get a big enough shell, a big enough cannon, you can start firing them on a ballistic arc. 
and you would create what's like called plunging fire. Okay, I was about to ask if the if the because I was been watching this footage and I was like, it seems like these shots are landing from above and then punching through like three layers of deck, and that seems really bad for <laughs> everyone involved. That this became seems dark. That was the whole theory is that like it is all these things were becoming like more and more thickly armored from the sides, uh, to the point where like the the heaviest battleships were invulnerable to cruisers, to just like destroyers, to all sorts of things. They just blast the hell out of them. But the thing that you couldn't really protect yourself from was like a 15 inch shell, which effectively means like you're firing a train car um, through the air uh, at, at these things. Um, That thing would come sailing like weight wise. Like they they were so, they were so heavy. This thing would come sailing in a ballistic arc and like, it's very hard to put down enough steel plating to prevent that from getting through the deck and into the engines or the magazines. Uh, and so like when these things went, it could be pretty spectacular. Like uh, the most famous battlefield engagement over World war II probably is uh, the hood and the Bismarck. Uh, the hood was an aging battle cruiser up against a German battleship. Um, and, that engagement lasted like three minutes uh, because the Bismarck hit the hood once and the ship exploded um, like instantaneously, Jesus like three Christ. people got off that ship um, because like the, like those were the forces you were playing with. Does so this feel like it's, it's doing that. Do you have that? Like, so most of what I've been playing is, is like, I haven't really played around with like the dreadnought battleships yet. And certainly not in like, the big engagements. What I've been playing around with is a lot more um, mismatches in some ways, asymmetry, trying to teach you about like targeting and these dynamics. Uh, but the thing that the thing that a lot of the fights happen before, like the dreadnought era, the, the vibe they have uh, is that these things are incredibly tanky uh, before, before you enter that like all big gun era. So that like, it's a ton of, you start realizing, oh, I can't break through their armor. So you start switching to high explosive rounds because, well, you could just start trying to set fires aboard the deck. Um, and that will be good because they will at least be blinded uh, and mm-hmm. they will struggle to fight their ship. So like it, it can feel, it can feel like super swingy where things just explode out of nowhere following a, uh, you know, a really high impact hit or it can feel like, um, like two kaiju just going at it and just like trading blows wrecking buildings but like neither is actually even close to coming out of the fight right and that's a lot of fun like i will say i think that's probably my favorite is just when it feels like you've got ridiculous tanks just like blasting away uh and and trying to get the edge uh i am i'm super curious you know what it's gonna feel like when i'm playing around the uh the the dreadnought battleships but you know, the, the thing this gestures at, and this is probably to come up more in the campaign game, is um, like those battleships, the idea was they would kill other battleships at ranges like 30, 40 miles, but they didn't really have much in the way of weapon systems to deal with things like patrol boats, destroyers, uh, etc. Right. So you would need other ships in there to be like almost like the machine guns. Uh, of the Navy to like create the perimeter and protect it uh, from like raiders. So that's the other, that's the other thing is you're building out your fleets is 
how many eggs do you want to put in like the one big like dreadnought basket and how much do you want to distribute like other missions uh across other ships right but yeah yeah that sounds neat it is neat this is so like i thought it was just going to be ultimate admiral 2 this time we're doing like ironclads and shit it really is not that this is much more of a like fleet design and doctrine builder uh in a way that's 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 really a lot of fun um even even with the rush rough edges uh so i'll board a report once i start playing with the campaign game more but um i just wanted to let people know that uh there's room in my heart and maybe there's room in your heart for all the archaic uh naval warfare tools <laughs> i should play faster than light <laughs> what it's a match to play ftl yep well i was actually thinking like uh i don't know like from what you said like about terra invicta and such so i was like this seems i mean this the, the thing this doesn't have is like chart a a gravity assisted trajectory through the solar system like doesn't have that but <laughs> uh, anyway so that's what i have been up to um Patrick, you mentioned uh, here in the notes, you had a little follow up about season and its user interface. Uh, I did. We had a um, conversation. So this game, you know, this game comes out uh, when this comes out. It'll be. Yeah. When this episode comes out, the game will finally be out. We talked about uh, season 11 of the future uh, a lot uh, last week, um, a game that Ron and I were both very into. And but one of the points of contention was over this uh the way the game has you exploring spaces and it has a little meter that fills when you take pictures or place down little illustrations or take recordings and that triggers a little bit of story and we had some questions over it says like why does this exist i you know i mentioned i appreciate it because it got me to sort of like fully explore the world in a way ren kind of wished it was either a meter that took longer to fill or didn't exist at all because they didn't need any more uh, reason to, if anything, they needed someone with a stick saying, hey, Ren, go finish the game uh, after nearly 20 hours of taking taking photos. So we were on opposite ends of the spectrum. Uh, and thankfully, I was able to send an email to the folks that worked on the game and just asked, hey, what's up? And uh, so I just wanted to share this as a little bit of follow-up. So I got um, this from, let's see, who is it attributed to? They just attributed to a Kevin. Kevin, I'll try and look up the credits on who who Kevin is. Um, uh, Quote, we actually had uh, the same division on the team. Some would have preferred a completely free experience, but overall we felt it would exclude too many players uh, who would otherwise enjoy the game. The problem with things being too uh, free or open is that the player isn't getting feedback that what they're doing is correct. And for some people, this is annoying and breaks the mood. But if things are too regimented and we give a lot of tasks, that also breaks the mood. So we ended up somewhere in the middle. We have the meter, but the majority of the journal pages can be completed with anything related to the subject or location. The exception is what we call mystery thread journal pages, where there's specific evidence to go and collect. Since these plot lines are already not super easy to understand, this felt fair to give a little more structure to it. The number of things in the journal was a Goldilocks case of four feeling like too many and six uh, like uh, six of them. Uh, two, uh, sorry. Uh, a case of four feeling like too few and six uh, too many. We had a design where the player could complete the entry on command once they had enough keepsakes on it so that it wouldn't play automatically, but it came too late to be implemented. Um, <laughs> so that all makes sense. I think that really kind of lines up with 
how we've yeah. read the, the design implementation uh, as well. But it is interesting to, to uh, read four being too few, too few and six being too many uh, as the the actual number. So five was kind of a, a sweet spot. But uh, yeah, just kind of an interesting insight into how they actually uh, put that thing uh, together. All right. Uh, I think we will take a quick break there. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about a space for the unbound and Patrick's been watching the hit show uh, of the season, The Last of Us, and he has some feelings. Back after this. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. So, Patrick. Yes. I didn't have time to watch The Last of Us uh, yeah, this you, you, Yeah, you clearly, you said you played eight hours of Dreadnoughts. <laughs> well, between that and football, you, that your and football weekend was consumed. And good news, everybody. It's another year of motorsport. I had to watch the Rolex 24, which, as you might expect, is a 24-hour endurance race. Oh, my gosh. For yourself or the racers? <laughs> for both for me it's a joy <laughs> for them it's an endurance race but for me it's like ah 20 what's what's better than this 24 hours of multi-class racing on the same circuit uh you know for from day through night back into the day so i was a little busy uh <laughs> and i apparently missed an episode of last of us that like had been there was a lot of buzz around it going in uh and everyone was uh like losing their minds over yesterday so like you've been keeping up with this uh what what is so important about last of us episode three well so what's interesting about the series is the it it allows deviations from the storytelling like the the last of us is a you know broadly a story that is following joel and ellie and Everything is to the side. It is following these two characters. They have interactions with other people along the way, but those are are frequently incidental uh, to to the storytelling. And all the sequence with Bill, uh, uh, which he's a memorable character, but broadly he's there to like teach you, like to, to introduce you to an, like a new enemy type. And there's it's a memorable town. He's a he's a, a pretty you know, kind of generic sort of survivalist. Like it's play the care, the actor plays bill really well, but in terms of what bill represents in the game, doesn't amount to a whole lot and is remembered mostly for, or, or, you know, in addition to, uh, because at the end of the sequence with bill, where he's trying to help you find a battery so that you can get a car and you can get moving. Uh, you can, you discover that bill had a partner, um, and spoilers for the game, uh, but that that, po- that that partner was bitten, got infected, killed themselves, and and and, and very and leaves a note that says 
They hated Bill's guts. And basically, it implies that contributed to the decision uh, to take their life. It was well, not just the bite, but also because Bill, Bill is such a controlling, like, we're, you know, we have it as yes. good as we can possibly have it. We can't go out. We're like, this is our world now that it's all survivalism all the time. We, we like, in many ways, like Bill's like as overbearing as Joel has the potential to be. Um, yeah, it's a it's a peek yeah. into a different version of like a a path Joel could take with like Ellie in in particular, right? Like, so you know that's I think, yeah, that's kind of the, the the point of the character to some degree. But it's also important. Note, that's all optional. Yep. The game does not. The game does not. Uh, I, I believe you find all of this information in a side room. It's hard room. to miss. It's hard to miss, but it is. But it is missable. And you it's video games can, as hell. It's there's the note. There's there's Frank. Here's the environmental storytelling. Yeah. You know, like uh uh um and in here, uh this is an episode in which, you know, uh the events with tests have occurred. Uh you are Joel and Ellie are on their own, and we only very briefly get a moment with the two of them before uh they, they know that they're you know, a test recommends they go track down uh, Bill. And so, you know, that's the direction they're headed. And then some of the strongest moments in this, the series so far has been when it plays with time and goes to different periods of time, both uh, episodes one and two open with sequences that occur prior to the pandemic, to, prior to the infection. The one in sec- the second episode is particularly strong uh, in it does like the sort of prequely sort of stuff, but just in a in a way that's really evocative and effective and and haunting, um, without actually showing any sort of violence or outbreak or the traditional things we see from uh sort of like the prequel elements of of stories like this. And here we get an entire hour plus of uh Bill and uh Frank, um, his partner, how they meet, how they fall in love, and there is a specific deviation from the game in which it picks up that plot beat uh, where Frank asks Bill, you're, you're suffocating me. I don't want to be here uh, anymore. And instead of that driving a wedge between them that, you know, Bill opens his heart. It's a, it's a really striking, uh, really well directed, really well acted hour of basically like this queer romance in the middle of an apocalypse show in which the infected are appear once like there's a very brief aside. It's, it's, it's interesting on another level because the casting of Nick Offerman as bill is very specifically playing against a personality type in which the show parks and rec establishes essentially the canon of Nick Offerman's aesthetic, (laughs) which is like, he plays essentially a survivalist man's man. Yeah, and he, play, he yeah. plays it. Like, yeah, he plays a survival a survivalist in Parks and Rec that just happens to also work in the government bureaucracy and also trying to destroy it at all times. And it's clear he was cast knowing that is the broad perception of him in mind, and so then casting him as this this uh, survivalist, where uh, the framing of the episode is um, there's a mo- you know there's a moment in the outbreak in the early days where the quarantine zones don't have enough resources to house people. And so there's the government is going from small town to small town, claiming they're going around to pick people up to take them to the quarantine zone. And they're just firing squad them and just Mm -hmm. dumping them into, into ditches. And this comes for Bill's town and it's the moment he's been waiting for his whole life, which is that the government is coming to get me 
and now is the time to go into my basement hatch full of cameras. And there's this just delightful sequence where everyone <laughs> leaves. His town is miles and miles away from everyone. Obviously, it's horrible what's happening to these people, but he couldn't be more overjoyed. Like, like chipper, chipper music goes on. He goes down to the gas company, like, like turns the gas back on. He's got electricity, hot water, steals everyone's booze, uh, and uh, gets his own chickens. It's just, it's, you know, you think he's got it made. And what, what happens is that, you know, he's got all these traps, you know, set up around uh, the area and he ends up trapping um, this guy named Frank, who was uh, with the larger group uh, outside of Boston uh, and finds himself in a hole like that, <laughs> that Bill has dug. Caught himself a man. Hang Caught on. himself a man. Patrick, <laughs> hang on. Mm-hmm. Hang on. It sounds like we're coming dangerously close to Last of Us Episode 3 is what if 10 Cloverfield Lane was a romance? Uh, he Well, except that he the kidnapping is only for a moment. <laughs> 10 Cloverfield Lane, great movie. People should go watch that. Great that movie. Great, great movie. movie. Like tremendous performances in that in that film. But no, it, 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 he he captures him and he, you know, he's got a gun trained on him. But pretty quickly he said, OK, why don't you come in? I'll feed you. And then. You know, you got to get on your way. Um, and, you know, they they, they, they played the, the character of Bill as, you know, he's got to be this gruff, uh, you know, survivalist. And what happens, they kind of, they do a bit of yada, yada, yada to get them to, we're attracted to one another. And I think that's a fair criticism of where the storytelling is here for even for an episode that is an hour, hour plus long. But I don't know, I, I thought Nick Offerman like plays the part with like a real interesting vulnerability that, uh is is just really remarkable. I thought it was a, a wonderful episode of of television and the way it ends is really beautiful and I don't want to get into the we we can do I know Ren you said you're going to watch the episode and I'm curious yeah. what your your take is on it when you actually get to, to to the episode and and how it frames everything. We can do kind of a spoiler section on that when you uh when you've watched it but um it's uh I don't know. I I found it the fact that this takes place in an, an apocalypse show I don't know. It, it really worked for me. I I had a uh, a tremendous time uh, dr- attempting to watch the show while crying, which was you know we were just talking about you know stories that make us cry, and this one this one this one got to me yeah. uh, pretty good. And and in some ways it was an interesting, almost indictment of the storytelling that occurs in games like this because without explaining the the plot beats that occur uh, throughout the episode, uh, it ends with. Ellie reading a note from Bill and it's the kind of note that the player would pick up does pick up mm-hmm. in the game to understand what Bill and Frank's relationship was and that feels very deliberate to hey this is how games like this communicate their world building when it's not characters talking to one another and this episode is going to end with Ellie reading a note um, having experienced the world building mm-hmm. over the course of that hour. Um, go ahead, Ron. Well, like this, this to me is like, I, I think Last of Us is, is kind of fascinating because like we rarely see, we rarely see this style of adaptation and tr- effectively translation done with games, right? Like you cannot do The Last of Us beat by beat. It just doesn't work as a television show. There's not it's enough just, material. No, <laughs> like, there's not enough material. There are, it's it's too much combat. Like you cannot have hours and hours of action scenes in a television show, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that actually, the thing I like about, I have some, I have a lot of qualms with The Last of Us television show, but the things that I like about it 
are the moments where they let the camera look at anyone other than Joel and Ellie. Because, like, that is where the show is at its strongest. Uh, the introduction to episode two, which is just, like, I think, like, five or ten minutes focusing mm-hmm. on a mycologist uh, in, I believe, Indonesia. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. Great. G- fucking incredible television. Just, I watched it uh, with, with a good friend of mine, and uh, we were, like, sitting in her bed with some other folks, and I just, like, watched everyone sitting there vibrating for minutes. <laughs> and, like... Though that is the best moment of the television show to me. And like, this is such a good example of that. And why when the camera goes back to Joel and Ellie, I always am just like, ah, damn, what was happening over there, though? Because like, this is such a different vision of what the apocalypse looks like and what the world can look like that I am so fascinated by. Uh, And I wish that like, one, I'm glad that it's getting like time uh, in the television show. And two... It makes it it draws attention to some of the uh, weaker aspects of the original text. Ren, uh, yeah, I'm- I know, I I, I agree. I, th- I think the Joel and Ellie stuff is is frequently the weakest stuff in the adaptation, and that is not necessarily the adaptation's fault as much as it's exposing some of the the weaknesses in the in the original source material and like these moments where they they deviate around it and expand upon the world and what would be interesting about that world is is some of the best stuff um, that is there. Robbie, you're going to say something. Well, I was just curious. Like, there's another, there's another show, another adaptation that I've been meaning to get around to. It was Station Eleven, uh, which was Tremendous. a novel Tremendous. I adored. Um, yeah. And like, in some ways, it kind of sounds like that. That aside, these two asides you've mentioned both sound structurally like a lot of what Station Eleven is doing in the, in the novel, at least. Uh, which is like taking time to look away from the main action of the apocalypse to do like character building uh, or or look at different parts of the world. Um, so it remains in the show, right? Yeah. Like the, the pi- like the pilot of Station Eleven. I haven't read the book, but I watched the show and it's one of my all time favorites from the last couple of years. And the, the pilot has, hey, we got to here's how things all went wrong. Um, but after that, it's all essentially just a show about like hope and culture in yeah. the in the post-apocalypse and mm-hmm. and is not really about uh you know the walking dead where it's like right. it's just like like who wants to watch people get you know bit gnarly over and over again for the most successful character seasons. they introduced after the first season was a bat like that's that's <laughs> not serious uh the other strange thing about the show i i i to I've I, I like it. I'm trying. I'm always trying to watch it through the lens of my wife because she has no understanding, uh, no history with with the game. And one of the strange parts about this series is that it's not that the visual effects are bad, although the visual effects pipeline in Hollywood right now is really messed up, and it's always hard to tell how much is rushed work. Like when you mm-hmm. see shoddy compositing, which this show has a couple of times, really really bad compositing where it's like I can see the green screen guys um and but there are moments where because it's doing such in many uh, such literal adaptations of sequences of the game especially when Joel and Ellie are like you know trying to leave Boston they're doing CG renderings of of moments I experienced in real time right. in in the game engine and they look worse 
because of that. Like yep. the fidel like the the fidelity bar that it has to reach to be better than what I have seen on my yep. PS5 is so high. And we're at a movie where it could really in like invest in those sequences. Maybe it's possible. But on a television show, even one as grandiose and as expensive as this one, there are moments that this probably doesn't happen to people that don't have an association with these visuals in in a video game where they are just experiencing it for the first time in the show. But for me, every time they're doing these, clearly gesturing at like, look at this impressive post-apocalypse. And I'm like, that looks worse than the 4K one that's on my TV uh, that I could go boot up downstairs because the fidelity is so high on the original source material. Yeah, and I think this like also draws attention to what, for me, what is like, I was talking with another friend last night about the show and was was talking about how, you know, um, he was like, oh, I'm really excited that the show is going to be like an uh, could be an entry point for people like playing and thinking about games in different ways. Right. And, and you know, believe it, the classic. Right. This adaptation will be the one that convinces the uh, people that the medium is worthwhile. And like I, I watch this show and I'm like, this is not making a case for video games like the the, the television show. The Last of Us is not making that case, right? The compositing in that scene is not like, there are things that are just bad and difficult to translate from a game into a television show. And for all of the moments where they're doing a really good job of, you know, adding to the text through translation, they are also like, there are these moments you're talking about where the compositing is bad. And it's like, because you have chosen this medium, there are fundamental aspects of the thing that you are making that you just cannot do on a technical level. Or if you could do them, would require... A, a true, this is way harder. astounding yeah. amount of money and time yeah. uh, in an in industry that just doesn't have it. And so it leaves the show occasionally feeling like it's in this weird spot of making a great case for The Last of Us as television show and completely undercutting the case for The Last of Us as video game, unless you've already played it, at which point it reinforces your belief that The Last of Us is, as, as video game really rules. Uh, there's also a couple of things that I think have been interesting about the adaptation so far where broadly we haven't really seen the infected like they're they're really choosing their moments on when they appear to try and make them impactful I do think like the strongest element uh, other than the performance of is Anna Torv uh, I think is the 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 actor uh, who plays Tess uh, really strong performance uh, from her but also the little seat the kind of the museum combat sequence with the infected part of what I really liked about it is that it does make like in the game I don't know like not that the combat is rollover but like you feel powerful and what was what was great about the staging of the combat sequence in the show is that like the infected are they take a ton of bullets like they take a whole clip to put one down Joel is not that good at this right like he is he may have done whatever he needs to do to survive but I didn't come away from that sequence and be like man Joel is like a real badass gun wielding Dude, it's like, no, like, Joel is barely scraping through these sequences as well. And I felt like the show in general has portrayed him as kind of, dipshit is, like, exaggerating it. But he's far less competent than I think the game portrays Joel as in The in, in the Last of Us game, anyway. I I, I actually, I, I think it's an interesting point because I, I think that, like, the action choreography, yes. But in terms of how the narrative frames him, I, I've been really interested in the ways in which, like, before, in the, in the first episode of that show, Joel is treated like a rabid fucking dog that is held back by Tess, and that mm-hmm. is it. Uh, and, like, there are there are sequences where you get that. And the, and the thing that it kind of 
suggests to me is not that Joel is barely scraping by. It is like he might actually be the dude. Like he might be the dude. And this is what fighting the, the like this is what fighting clickers looks like. This is right. the this is the only way. It does not matter if you are trained out out the ass. You are you're not going Jason to, Bourne in the clickers. Yeah, you're yeah, you're no. not. No, he's he's constantly getting knocked down. Like, I mean, just bare, I mean, and it's it it, it run it you know, it nicely runs up against the portrayal of yourself in, in the game in which like, well, I'll just hide around this and then line up my shot. It's like, there's just none of that there. And there'd be a way you could portray that. And I, I just like the fact that it made yeah. even the most skilled players in this space are going to get their ass kicked anytime you come up against these creatures. And so I think my making these sequences very abrupt and rare like at least it really it does the opposite of the video game in which like I know every 15 minutes I'm going to be fighting a bunch of these clickers and here you can we're three episodes in and there's been like basically one sequence with them. Well, given the VFX struggles they're sometimes up against, I can imagine that writer's room fingers trembling as they contemplate the next action. Well, all that sequence. is practical, right? The right. museum's dark, right? Yeah. It's 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 people running around like and they do set up like essentially like ways for there to be big swarms of them, but um, I mean, those are just even like aesthetically, that's less interesting to look at, you know, from a staging point of view, it's, it's less interesting for the characters. And so, uh, I, I hope they continue keeping that, those fights kind of small and scrappy. Yeah. I think one of the better decisions in episode two was not cutting to what Joel sees outside the courthouse, yeah. because it's like the second you do that all, a lot of people's suspension of disbelief just falls away. And instead you just get like the slow trickle of like 15 uh infected like running in and it's like okay that is a group of people i can recognize that as like big right and i think that i think it's an extremely extremely well-made show the ends to which it is being made i am completely uncertain about um so patron uh kato you've been playing uh this has been on the agenda for a couple weeks now uh again we wanted to get to a space for the unbound yeah. Um, now the note here from Kato says first hour, but that's like three weeks old. Kato. <laughs> yeah. Are we out of the first hour? Yeah, of, we are. A space are. for the unbound. <laughs> but now I am in the first hour. God so Kato, I think, has so it actually the note. Yeah, depending still, on your point of view, yeah. is is still accurate. <laughs> so Kato, you've been playing a bit of that space for the unbound. Yeah. Uh, Space for the Unbound is a an adventure game from um, Mojiken, which is an Indonesian developer. Um, uh, I don't know if we've, we talked about when the past was around, but it was a name of it uh, that I've heard before, which is one of their earlier games. That, um, uh, but it's, so it's that same developer if you've played that game. But uh, it has this very. Um, uh, kind of striking looking uh pixel art um situation and like it, it it sets up its story in a very interesting way where it immediately kind of has me had me um unsure of where my char- my character's position was in like metaphysics <laughs> just like are we, when are we, see, when is, when, when are we, seeing, who are we, why are we, <laughs> there's a lot of, I kind of, I kind of also, I want to, I, uh, I yeah. played, I, I played the opening 30 minutes of this, uh-huh. With my kid, ah. and uh, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 here's um, what I'll say. Uh, my, well. my, my, my host goes like, 
I was, I was, you know, she's still learning how to read. And yeah. so I was, I was reading the text to her and, um, yeah. And the opening part of the game, I mean like slight spoilers, I suppose, if you don't want to know how like the, but it's like the base level premise of what happens in the first 30 minutes. But like yeah. your character appears to die drowning in, yeah. in a river. And my daughter's like, are you dying? And I was like, and then, you know, Maybe? a giant, per- a giant person appears with an orb and like kind of catches your essence or something. And I was like, I'm sure, Jessica, yeah. I, uh, was that whole I sequence d- a dream or no. are, is the new sequence a dream? Both. But of then them- I got this red book, Kato, and it's right. coming through space and time. Both I don't. Of, at first, you're like, you're like considering like, OK, something like magical happened in this other sequence. So this must be the real world. And then mm-hmm. magical or weird or odd shit starts happening in what you think is the new real world. So are both are they both is like magic just a real thing in this in this in 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 this world this version of the world which otherwise is a very uh seems to be like you know it's small you know, the the map consists of a small town in indonesia and everything else about it seems like you know it's very like down to earth and like the people making it are people from this from this place which is like you know you get the sense sometimes when like a place has the right sorts of details um, that's like, oh, this is made from someone who like this is this this was their environment, right? Um, which is which is interesting because you you know we don't often get a lot of uh, kind of I guess the word the term it is kind of a slice of life, slice from, of life. From, yeah 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 um, it feels like you're getting a real peek into a different culture. Yes, um, real quick, I am curious because like I noticed the store page like makes a point of mentioning this like uh, 1990s Indonesia, and I am I am curious like 1990s is when like uh, a long-standing dictatorship in Indonesia kind of collapses. Um, and I'm curious, like, can you feel that a bit in the background that there's like political turmoil or is this not, is this not about uh, the politics of Indonesia in that way? Um, there's a little bit in the background, especially further in like that. At first it's like, um, without directly knowing there are a lot of people in that sort of, you kind of imagine the uh, like all green uniform of a civil servant that like kind of uh, to me signals that sort of um, government like uh, past, but like it's not like forefronted really. Like there are a few mentions of like, you know, there's change happening in, in the background, but it is much more about the the individual characters and what they're going through and um, a sort of, um, uh, sort of, uh, like I would almost categorize it as like magical realism, mm-hmm. uh, without having been, without it revealing exactly what, where truth lies in what I'm seeing in playing through this game, um, which is really interesting. Um, but you, you play as, um, Atma, uh, this, um, I think we're in high school. I think it's high school, not middle school. Yeah, they're they're, they're, they're seniors. Yeah, uh, they're yeah. getting. Yeah, they're like one of the the early plot points is about going to a kind of a, a career right like, so meeting or like, something yeah. to figure out what your future is going to be. What's your future going to be? What does the my future, future is hold? collecting twenty bottle caps? That's what I. I that's the uh, my future I is petty. Your future is drowning in a river. Well, <laughs> that's the past or the future. Or the we're future, not, you know, or an alternate universe, or just um, in your brain, just in your mind. Not only can you not only can you pet a lot of cats. Oh, this is one of my favorite parts of the entire game. Yeah, uh, is that there are so many cats to pet, but every time you pet a cat, it gives you three options to n- name, name them. the cat. You don't know what the cat's name is. There's a lot of stray cats, kind of just 
like bodega cat vibes, uh, yeah. but like all over the place. Um, and every time you pet one, is like, and your name is, and you get to pick three pick from one of three. <laughs> There's some and good it's ones in delightful. there. Yeah. There's some really good ones in there. But it, every single time I find one, that's the first thing I yeah. interact with in the environment is because yeah, because the game is very much a kind of a, this, a style of point and click adventure. Uh, it, even just the way you're navigating. Yeah. You know, I'm playing with a controller, but it, you know, it has even like an a like a verb wheel that comes up where like when you find an object that you can interact with, it's like, well, you can interact with it. You can use an object on it. You can talk to it. And you know, it has, it's definitely pulling from not only is it a game set in the nineties, but it is pulling from nineties era point and click adventure games in terms of its uh, interface as well. Yeah. And uh, what's, what's been fun is, is also some of the framing that they do around like uh, things that you can, uh, shoot for in in this game because very very early on after that opening sequence uh, when you wake up in the in the classroom you have like your girlfriend and you make a bucket list basically for like this is your last year at school at at high school you're gonna try to do all these things before you move on um, and one of the things I realized was like oh this is why there's so many cats one of the things that your character puts on the list is pet the fluffiest creature ever. That's true. Um, I hope there's an achievement. So like tied you have to, to you have to check that. every cat. You have to check every cat in case it's yeah. the fluffiest cat. Uh, they they should have given me some measuring. Let tape me tell as you, well, which that expands, was uh, one of the verbs. It expands past cats eventually. It's there's some wild. It's weird. They they start to add. Um, it really again ex- the magical reason realism. Vibe. Yeah, like yeah. do we have some Totoro type <laughs> stuff that you might be? It expands. Um, it 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 what it so in the beginning chapters. Um. Like I'm going around in like this little side idea of like I want to pet the, the like the fluffiest thing, so I should check on every single cat. But then this game kind of um really, um what's the word I'm looking for? Uh um, it, it, you should explore. You should explore past what the like main thing you're doing is because there's always something hidden in a corner of like oh here's another thread to pull on, and some of it is going towards those like side objectives like petting the fluffiest thing and some of them are just like also uh really like beautiful world building that if you're not checking all the corners you're gonna miss which is which is kind of unfortunate but like well i think what i'm trying to say is that it it it, it really really rewards uh ex- exploration in a way where i feel like sometimes until you hit the like story beat in a adventure game there won't be anything for you there sort of deal they've added a lot of extra things in the like periphery of the main thing that are that's worth like checking out and that and that's really fun um yeah ren did you have um hang on ren uh well i i had i had two questions uh one kato Uh uh-huh up or down is this a renata game thumbs up or down uh you know it's hard to tell i think okay i think up it's like okay. It's like middle, I think, because, and I don't know how much this is gonna bother other people, but as a person who speaks a second language, this translation's real bad. Like it doesn't show uh, super early, but like further in, mm. I'm like, I was kind of decoding things. I'm like, oh, I understand this speech pattern, because like I. I've done there, this kind there, of weird there are, translation. There are some grammar issues early yeah. on, and that was like, oh, 
All right. I mean, but it, it doesn't. It was, it, it was fine. Like, right. You know, like, the, it, it, I feel like people will have different tolerances for like being able to understand. It's like not difficult to parse what they're trying to say. It's just right. like it, it might break the flow of like, oh, that mm. that was off. That was odd. Um, And like, I don't know. I think that it doesn't it didn't affect it for me very much. But like that that does happen semi regularly where you're like, that's not the way that sentence should be structured, but okay, we'll move past it. Um, and yeah, what was your, well, was Ren's other uh, question. Oh yeah, we can, we can, I, the second question was a, was a ontological question about the nature of fluffiness that I, that we can return to later. <laughs> <laughs> How do you know when it's fluffy enough? Yeah. Who knows? Um, uh, does they do this? So this game, uh, I get, hmm, how do I phrase this? So this game opens with a content warning right right off the bat, which is essentially, hey, like this is going to be a game in which there are depictions or discussions openly of like depression, self-harm. And I think there's like even like, you know, if if you need more information on these topics, like here's a website. It was like a really, you know, great way of sort of like opening up the game, preparing you. But like the game (laughs) so far is like a slice of life. I uh like the main thing I need to do is like I need to go meet up with my girlfriend. I need to escape school. Like mm-hmm. it's it's really goofy and fun yeah. and obviously obviously yes, does it open with a river death or perceived river death? Sure, sure, sure. But uh in terms of what it seems like the the meat of the game, like where I'm going to is sort of this like fun and fancy free adventure with uh my girlfriend. I'm how does the game handle its pivots tonally? I get are there is there an escalation of stakes that like start gesturing in this direction yeah. for the game to be so forward about these topics. Um, I mean, aside, like if it's here, yeah. like, it's like this must be a big part of the game. If you're going to put it at the front and not necessarily like a warning that might happen ahead of a scene occurring. Yeah. I think there's, it's, it's kind of a slow rollout. Like you get hints and, and bits and pieces start dropping the further you get in. And like, I okay. do think the, 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 the drowning scene is partially almost like a, a signal of like this is this will get this dark right like well not only that but you return like, to this the, level of like talking about violence and oh yeah yeah you were about to say i mean like you're you yeah the, i mean the prologue opens with you going essentially like a, a friend of yours has uh run away from or like you know kind of ditched being grounded um because their father there is certainly emotional abuse it is not necessarily you're not like you don't have the full picture on whether that has become physical but like it's not a, you don't want to be home and you have to go sneak in to get something from their room. Um, and you can tell it's a, a bad situation for, for your friend. And so, I mean, it it clearly does that, you know, like it is setting the table tonally right from the bat that, Hey, if we're going to depict like, you know, a best friend drowning and, you know, emotional, uh, familial abuse that, Hey, uh, the, the shit could get real yes. in this game awfully fast, even if it then immediately pivots to a bucket list of a ditching class and collecting bottle caps and, and touching the fluffiest creature right. possible. And like, I think uh, you're right on the precipice of it being, of it dropping its first, like, okay. And like, now mm. this is, okay. this, this, this puts into question where, where like reality lies as well. Uh, kind of pretty quickly after the section that you've played, Patrick. And it does kind of slow drip the sort of like we're escalating back up to talking about those serious issues. And like um, eventually, so like in the opening uh, like 30 minutes, they 
uh, introduced this idea of diving into people's brains. They call oh, it a, right. Yeah, like we've clearly went, went past like space the coolest, diving, the coolest mechanic that the game has. So yeah, yeah. please explain the space yeah. diving because it's, it's it's really cool. Yeah, you you basically enter their their mind and there's some form of um uh essentially you know consider any sort of uh, adventure t- adventure type puzzle where you're, it's kind of an order of operations thing usually of do, do getting the right things in the right place but it's all you know talking through some sort of anxiety that the person has right or like figuring out how to get them to move past some some they'll they'll, they'll frequently move, kind of move be, past like being awake like the first one of the first puzzle <laughs> yeah. in the game is you know your 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 buddy needs their magic wand from their room and you can't go in the front door because you could potentially bust the spot of your friend having uh ran, ran away and so you need a ladder but the ladder is being used by some government you know civil servant you know person uh a screen over and so you go over there with your red book and your red book gives you the option to dive into the mind of a character and when you go in, like the person is talking about how they're tired. And so you go into this kind of projected consciousness in which you like turn off the lights. You take like a bat and like break a clock and, and essentially you, allow this person they, to sleep. Well, here's an important thing. And this is one of the things that makes this these sequences existing more interesting is that um, one of the things you need is a cassette tape. And that cassette right. tape exists in the real world. In the real so world. like they've they've they what was the music what, genre? Do you remember? It's a specific type of Indonesian music from uh, the nineties that like it was they, a cool ha- was it like it has a it has this very specific name in Indonesian. Yeah. Um, but like it's like in the nineties old people music. <laughs> like to to him it was like old people music, right? Um, and it so like establishes this idea that oh like you are you're taking the these like you know that that boundary between people's minds and physical space whatever that may mean even within the bounds of this game which is already messy like is is permeable like you can take things in take things out so like there'll be sequences where you need something from somebody else's mind to get to a different mind later on um and things like that um and it's very interesting how they tie the sort of psyche of the people in this in this town together in different ways later on like it gets more more complex and more kind of nested in different ways which is really neat and um i'm i'm really excited to get to the bottom of what the fuck is happening because they keep slowly escalating i'm like about eight eight hours in i think i'm rounding i think they i've seen people finish around 10 or 12 so um I've really heard it is a real to to the gut punch. Yeah, I, I can a... kind of see where we're headed <laughs> a little yeah. bit, and I'm like bracing for impact. But apparently, um, it sticks the landing though. Like yeah. everything I've read from folks who have seen the story all the way through have called it a right. real a triumph, uh, and just uh, you know, obviously a lot, and it's dealing with some really tricky topics. Yes. But the folks I know who have played it have really praised how it handles those topics, and that it. It's yeah, be, be ready, you know, prepare to cry, but that <laughs> you know, it's it's a journey worth taking. I'm yeah, I'm really excited to see see the end of it and um I would suggest to anyone who who picks it up to really there'll be times when it like signals like you're you're going to be moving on from this chapter or whatever. Just give the give the map a, another pass. Just just double check the corners. There's there's it's almost always worth it to like see the side stuff and there's some really really good stuff there that I think if you're playing this game you would enjoy so like it's so pretty too yeah like 
super I, I super great pixel like art. articulating why these particular pixel <laughs> graphics are <laughs> better than the ones I've seen before but there is just if you just look at some screenshots like it'll it'll become apparent on upon viewing it but it is it is really strike there's a level of like detail to the world that is just makes you want to go look for all those nooks and crannies and yeah. in the way that is goes beyond just the 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 storytelling stuff it's just you want to appreciate what the artists did uh, because the it's just it's it's really uh, something to look at uh i think we can i think that covers games uh for today let's dip into the question bucket before we wrap the show uh remember you can send us all your questions at gaming at vice.com with the subject line questions uh so first a few people wrote in uh defending kato's turtle mount uh on the question of uh, what should we? What would we Woo! ride into battle? <laughs> uh, Danny from Texas writes, "Hey y'all, your argument about what animal mount you'd prefer to ride into battle left me feeling like you unfairly dismissed Kato's choice of turtle mount. While they mentioned that they did not think about, while they mentioned that they did not think about giant tortoises, I think that something like an uh, an Aldabra or Galapagos tortoise would be an it would be ideal for a mount." They are already massive and well defended and have been documented to have at least some offensive capabilities. Nice. The part of their shell underneath their head known as the Guler? Guler Scutes? <laughs> Guler. 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 Uh, or, yeah. Guler. <laughs> uh, are used in competition where male tortoises ram them into other tortoises, sometimes destroying the other tortoise's head. Additionally, tortoises Whoa. have been observed using these weapons on smaller animals or even crushing birds underneath their massive weight to eat their bones, presumably to supplement calcium in their diet. Finally, both tortoises have been observed floating or even swimming hundreds of kilometers at sea, which is likely how they got to their island homes in the first place. While I see that a raven or raptor mount, such as basically a, the basically a velociraptor secretary bird, is a higher tier choice, I feel Holy compelled shit. to write in and request you put some respect on the turtle mount's name. Look at, the you goody, do. look at the Guler scute on this oh, guy. Do I want to look at the Guler scute? Look at it. Look at how far it sticks out. Yeah. Oh. You could stab someone with that thing. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> but now, here's the... The, the I I returned to the, my key qualm with Kato's I will tortoise. Cir- I will circle. I will circle where I there is a space you can see it in the. I'm sitting literally on its head, and there's a tiny space. I will crawl up into a little ball in the tiny space above the head, but between the shell. You see that that yeah. little gap? That's me. If, <laughs> that is not a horse sized tortoise. No, Kato. I, 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 I realize that is a kaiju sized. The turtle tortoise. is probably more the size of like several train cars, but whatever, you know, I can fit in there. <laughs> uh, but there is, there. there is technically space. Stinky. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, I think I think we should all. I do see it now. I see the vision. I, I see Thank the. You. Thank you. I, I I see the little like armored nest uh, that Kato is is carved out for themselves. Uh, so we also hey, have before this. you before you do another one. Yeah. I, I saved this one. I want to yeah. share this news article. I wanted mm. Rob here for this one. Um, this uh, question comes. Uh, this really this link comes in from Dave. 
Uh, hello, Waypoint Crew. Patrick's love of the Kirkland brand is easy to square with the fuck capitalism, go home ethos of the podcast. After all, we can all use a good deal out here in the hellscape now and then. But I'm curious, with the recent reveal of Costco accommodations, would Patrick live in a Kirkland signature apartment? Is landlord status a bridge too far for the brand loyalty? What? Do you get hot dogs as part of a utilities? Best. Dave. And Dave linked us to this article, uh, Co-Star? Um, that is about these Los Angeles condos that have been proposed next to, attached to, a Costco. And I just, I, I, this just sounds like good living. <laughs> All right. For oh anyone who's like, this is dystopian, this is mm-hmm. terrible, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. One, I, I do respect the efficiency in, in terms of ability to access food goods. But two, suburbs got to start building up at some point. <laughs> like, if you're in a place with a Costco, you've got to, st- I'm, I'm fucking begging you, build vertically. I will, I will pay you to build vertically. And if this is what it takes, if this is what Dude. it takes for people in the Midwest to start building vertically is to live in the fucking Costco, then I'm fine. Listen, <laughs> the government, my, government is not Costco. going to save us. Yeah, well, yeah. they're Costco renting might. to you. So <laughs> I guess you are also living in a Costco. Live uh, on top of the fucking Costco. This looks utopian. Takes. Like I'm sorry. Yes, uh, exactly. This is, Once he uses the answer, honestly, <laughs> this is what this we want. This looks incredible. Yeah. Like just being first of all, just being able to run downstairs to my Costco. I mean, like, <laughs> just <laughs> look, look, look. The amount of times I would have loved to run downstairs and grab the buck fifty soda and hot dog for lunch. Ah! You be <laughs> you'll be turning a profit. How much you save on food? Yeah. <laughs> like you're always buying in bulk and it's right there. Well, so it's, it's right so not going to go to waste. The one if problem is of course now there's no point in buying in bulk. Right. Mm. Cuz it's so close you don't have to you, you like, make multiple trips. I would actually ideally be like I'm not storing shit. What I need is that like my pantry it's the Costco. <laughs> I regret, yeah. Well, yeah. then you're going to make, when you want to make pancakes, you're going to have to make a lot of pancakes. Like, just the biggest Well, it's a possible. good thing I will have a table with a leaf extension and uh, mm. six chairs and a bench uh, wow. for my many yes. guests. Yes. Now, here's, here's my question. I have two questions. One, do you get bulk purchase? Do you get this? Do you get bulk savings if you rent multiple apartments? <laughs> question one. Question two, I got to know what these look like on the inside, because I will say if there is one thing I do hate, Renata has become extremely I've become extremely dis- dismayed with some certain modern architectural trends. And this is this is the the most beautiful example of them I've ever seen. Ugh, go live in the business cube. You'll have a you'll have a great time living in the business cube. Yeah, we can't see inside. Yeah, that is, that is true. We are only kind of getting a glimpse into. The structure of it. I don't know. What would Costco make an apartment look like? Well, there'd probably be lots of space to store things, right? right. I mean, that would, by definition, mm-hmm. be an extension of the Costco philosophy. High, high ceilings, probably? With those, like, industrial floodlights? <laughs> now, now, here's the qualm. What if Costco designs the apartments? Patrick, what if it's that they design it so there's no storage? So you have to do the Rob Zachney method of going to Costco every time you want your grocery. Now, now we're finding <laughs> the dystopian core is that they're they're taking away your storage options and then providing you a solution. There's they're 
solving a problem that they themselves created, Patrick. That's true. I did. I did look into buying a a car through Costco uh, this weekend. They Costco does what? a thing where they they don't sell the cars, but they will pre-negotiate prices with dealerships, and so. Sort of like, but the appeal of going to like a CarMax is that you're going to pay more, but the price is the price. There's no upselling. You don't do, you're not dealing with someone. There's no haggling. So you're paying a little extra to just go in, buy a car and leave. And Costco does kind of a similarish thing, but there are no cars right now. So like the two cars <laughs> we were looking at. I was uh, like, this sounds awesome. Like I'll, I'll line, I'll, I'll, I'll line up to go look at this Toyota RAV4. And they're <clears> like, well, they, they don't have any. So. Oh, no Costco. Oh, well, that's weird there. Cause I mean, also, yeah. like the used car market is like crashing. Like the, the significant. The used car market is coming back down to earth, but, uh, the new cars, the sticker price, they aren't as expensive over the sticker Wait, price, but inventory sorry. is really down. Patrick, why are you contemplating a new car? Because the used car market is still ridiculous. So, for an example, to give you an example, we desperately need a second car. Like our kids are getting older and like, yeah, I'm putting got- this off for a year. To try- I've talked about it on the podcast, but my, uh, yourself. Yeah. (laughs) To my 2014 Honda CRV, we bought that for uh, 19 with like a a couple thousand dollar trade in for a really old Honda element. So we paid like roughly 17 for it. Uh, And that car right now is worth more than what I paid for it six years ago. Like that is how distorted the market is. It's like I looked up that 2014 Honda CRV. I was like, you want to buy that locally? You can get it for $17,500. Like, that's more than what I paid for it 6 years ago and it's a 2014 car. So now we are looking at you at new cars because yes, you're going to pay a premium on it, but at least it's brand new and maintenance and all that. It makes more sense to just deal with it that way. So I'm trying to find that Rob, this this is my way of nickel and diming it because I did the research on Costco Auto and people said you can save roughly $1,000 through their negotiated prices. So this was me trying to find a middle ground between paying a premium for a new car, which I don't want to do, but seems silly to get a used car when I'm I'm gambling on the the maintenance going forward. So Hey, I think I found the dystopia. Hit me. This is all being pitched for a new Costco that they they want to build in LA. Mm. This is like the only way to get it built. That's my suspicion. (laughs) This is the sweetener. They want five acres to develop for a Costco in LA, but to get that done, they're gonna, they're gonna say it's housing. Mm. Now look again, if it's a good concept, who cares? Right? Like ultimately the idea of it being a, like, suddenly you have a, a lot of like dense housing and then there's like a major store that people can like literally walk to or take the elevator to like, sure, fine. But I was initially like my initial interpretation of this was Costco was thinking, like looking at the situation and being like, we got big rooftops. We could put apartments on top of those rooftops and that we would be entering a golden age of like Costco apartment, like, uh how like towers springing up across this great land right costco costco solves the housing crisis by doing the thing that makes sense building upwards you know the the answer to the housing crisis that we figured out fucking centuries ago (laughs) stupid (laughs) stupid yeah i you know what? I would I would totally live in it though. I would be like hell yes, like absolutely. If if I found one of these was like opening up 
like nearby, I'd be like, we're selling the condo. <laughs> I probably wouldn't, but I'd be tempted. You think what's it. A, what's the square footage, Rob? What is the square footage it would take? <sighs> uh, like if I could, oh, to live in 2000 square feet seems very decadent. Okay, so two thousand. You would need a two thousand square foot apartment to be like, and in a Costco, not you would need in two- <laughs> <Okay>. above, <laughs> on top of, on living. top of, on top of. I'm Costco. not. Uh, you, you people are not going around the corner with their like ridiculous like cartload full of like industrial scale purchases, and like there I am behind glass like a dead saber tooth. <laughs> Like, no, I will be, I'll be above, uh, like gazing over the, the, over the lights of the city from my Costco penthouse. Imagine someone walking through a fucking freezer and being like, well, those are some really loud speakers. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Rob, Rob constantly be told to to turn, turn down his historical uh, documentary blazing through his, uh, his giant speakers. Rob, are you going to take those other speakers? No. Okay. I need. What's going to happen to them? So they will probably. Yeah, find, I guess you'd explain, you explain. You explain the tweet. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I, I might have just set up twenty minutes here, but I, I well, had to go I for it. it. Uh, so, yeah, I uh, my father in law reached out the other week, asking if we would be interested in getting a new set of stereo speakers. This, and this he, is where you got the old set, right? Like, yes. this is the same. This is his life. Source. This is how he lives his life. And his case is, these are even better vintage speakers than the Carvers. Like their their ceiling is. He described it. He, he heard these like once thirty years ago, and now he's become obsessed with them. But I've heard this description from other people. These speakers draw a curtain of sound across a space. As if it is not, it is as if there is no source for the sound. It is as if the sound is summoned out of thin air. How is this achieved? You might ask. You might ask. Well, these are some of the most, some of the, probably some of the best electrostatic speakers ever made. And, and this is why I'm not taking them. Also, some of the most notoriously finicky. Like, so my, uh, my audio guy in Cambridge doesn't stock electrostatic speakers anymore because they were a customer service nightmare. Like people would demo them in the room and then they would get back and be like, these sound like shit. What's, what's going wrong? And the answer is electrostatic speakers just by definition, uh, you pull up pictures of them. Uh, they, they are like, they're not like speaker chassis with like, uh, like drivers that's not how that's not how they work um they're almost like thin thin shells uh that uh like sort of create sound using i don't know some sort of process electric like i don't understand the physics behind this at all like i barely These understand are wild looking they are and they're enormously they look like little portable heaters that just happen to produce sound like if you imagine like a big vertical yep like heater you might have in your room uh now imagine instead of heat, it's it's producing audio instead. This and something the the wrap on them is like they can produce enormously clear, uh, like you know, like transparent sound. Uh, but they're incredibly sensitive to room acoustics, and mm-hmm. like the carvers are bad enough on this front. Like these carvers, 
if I move them like and like if I like bump into them and change their angle by an inch, I will notice the change. Like I will be like, mm. ah, it doesn't like I think I fucked this up. The carvers are sensitive enough on that on that standpoint. Electrostatic speakers, uh, like what my guy in Cambridge used to stock, were uh, Magnapan speakers. He was like, I wouldn't even like recommend considering them unless you can get the two speakers both with like six foot clearance from any walls. So you need like an auditorium like in your house to have these things. So, (laughs) man, reading this article from Stereophile.com, the pros and cons of 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 uh, electrostatic loudspeakers for this is from the cons. There are reasons why designers have persevered for over 40 years in refining electrostatic, despite its unenviable history of woes ranging from gross inefficiency through difficult amplifier loading to daunting unreliability. Unlike dynamic speakers, which will handle momentary overloads with the plumb, most electrostatics will break down instantly the first time an overload hits them. So, <laughs> wow. So, <clears throat> the speakers he specifically was pitching me on. And by the way, listeners, if the, if I know there are some audiophiles there who maybe do who do want to live this life, hit me up. Like he's got a bunch of these because like what he did apparently was he came into. Uh, there was an old speaker designer. Uh, God, I forget his first name, but um, it's the designer behind Beverage Electrostatic Speakers. And these are like, by all accounts, they have an enormously high ceiling. Like if you get them right, it's it's a religious experience. Getting them right is a nightmare. And yes, they are delicate. Um, so it would have been like, it would have been signing up. Like, I don't have space for these. I would have been signing up to like foster speakers that I would be fighting with for probably the rest of my life. Uh, (laughs) and, and somebody, uh, like replied to my tweet about this, like saying that, Hey, like these things are enormously power hungry. Uh, the amount, the, the amount that you load up, uh, in terms of, current is is truly absurd uh and dangerous after a point and my father-in-law did mention that beverage speakers have not been identified as the cause of house fires but they've been present for a shocking number of house fires hey 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 wait hey that's a speaker that kills people that's a that's an altered object. People in your in your Twitter mentions were right. My high voltage speakers are making a lot of people ask questions about the fires that keep happening around me. But they're not the speaker's fault. The numbers, the numbers were the numbers were wild uh, in terms of like what like what they want to be fed. Uh, so I yeah I I decided I'd look deep deep within myself and let go of my dream of having these absurd speakers like in, in my house. Cause I was thinking like it would be, it could be really cool to have, uh, you know, from the descriptions, like they, they do sound absolutely amazing, but yeah. Uh, so someone replied, uh, one model of those beverages was running with a tube amp at 2000 volts, direct current. That is enough for technicians to be scared of working on them. Mm. Bro, I just so I just I just googled um 
uh, electrostatic speakers fire. And uh, the first thing that came up was this video from Code Warrior on YouTube, homemade electrostatic speakers still playing after catching fire. Uh, the uh, description of this video says, the big coffee stain looking mess on uh, top right of left speaker is where it ignited. Heard whining sound, then intense blue sparks coming from that area. I lowered the bias voltage, plugged it back in to see what happened. Sounds as good as new. So, audiophile <laughs> world is weird. Uh, mm -hmm. My father-in-law tells with enthusiasm a story of how he hot-rotted and overloaded a set of over-the-ear headphones uh, driving so much uh, power through it that they began arcing across the headband. Jesus fucking Why would you Christ. want to do Because <laughs> they were loud as fuck and they sound incredible. That's bad for your ears. Yeah, no, he can't hear shit anymore. Uh, he, like, like, he has enormous, like, enormous frequency ranges uh, where he needs some assistance. He, like, it is, he, like, he needs things loud. Uh, you know, he's a very good well, it engineer. Well, makes sense he's got the electrostatic. Yeah. Like, you gotta, if you gotta keep cranking it to 11, you might as well get the... I did find uh wow so uh so Harold Beveridge was the engineer. His son actually wrote a history uh this looks like a college paper he wrote on it or something about working for his dad's company uh on this. Um but yeah, this was like, it was like an, a radar engineer from Raytheon. And for certain types of audio engineering, the the waveforms you're working with have a shocking overlap with like the issues that come up when you're working on radar. Uh, so there's a whole there's a whole generation of speaker designers that like also had like weird military contractor uh, affiliations anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's that's the dude. I've never heard these speakers. I've heard it's a I'm glad I didn't. I'm glad I've never heard them because otherwise it might be like my father in law. Like he heard them and he was like, I need to have this experience in my life. I need to have this beautiful curtain of sound uh, in my life. And I'm worried that if I heard them, if I heard that, I might end up the same way. And then I would really need that Costco apartment. I'm going to read this for y'all. And then we can decide if it's too dark for the pod. <laughs> oh, is it that? Um, Matt oh, writes, reading is. and then listening through Patrick and Rob's discussion of the Dead Space remake and his treatment of Isaac Clark and particularly the front loading of his family backstory, which isn't even something I remember picking up from playing the series back when I had a strange realization. The backstory is very similar to a relatively recent figure in world news. The assassin of former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, Tetsuya y Yamagami. There are obviously differences in the details, but some of the similarities between Yamagami's and Clark's personal histories with the Unification Church, Unitology, are striking to me. I have to wonder if anyone pointed this out or thought about this while they were developing the remake, when, whether they considered altering the content at all. Or maybe I'm just overstating the real similarity in my head here. I don't know. I just thought maybe you guys would find this accidental uh, this this accidental similarity interesting. Peace, Matt. I'm not as familiar. What is the overlap? So the dude who like created a homebrew like quad barrel shotgun. I remember that. Yes. Mm -hmm. His family had been like financially destroyed by this uh, unification church which is a part of um, 
got what is what is his name sung young uh moon moons uh this was like a a, a weird movement like in the 70s i want to say uh but it was yeah sun, sun myung moon uh like created this like weird offshoot christian church that has a lot of like uh cult like beliefs uh there's some weird like uh like ethnic hierarchy stuff that's like in the background there but the mm-hmm. the main thing is there's a lot of like your family isn't in heaven your dead relatives aren't in heaven for instance you should donate to the church so we can like pray for them to get to heaven um and like there's a lot of <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah there, there's and like so there's a lot of like people paying in apparently with the assassin his family uh had been uh sort of like financially destroyed uh by this church but crucially abe abe's family is like unification church royalty uh like it's not just he attended the church or like his dad was affiliated with the church like they are deeply enmeshed in the history of the unification church in japan and then gave a ton of unification church members like high ranking government posts and effectively like you know the the like in some ways use the power of the government to sort of foster the church is kind of the, mm-hmm. the criticism there uh and the the weird thing is you've seen memes about like is this guy accidentally is, is this guy turned out to be one of the most successful assassins of all time it is because after like uh his his slaying of abe a ton of media attention like got on the church and its weird relationship to Japanese government officials. And right, they started distancing themselves, right. right? Like the government. Yeah. Right. Like there was, there was kind like in a weird way, there was kind of a dynamic of, Oh, this guy had a point. Do I think but the like, developers thought about that? No, I don't. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Um, cause I, cause I just read it as like, Oh, that's Scientology. Right. Which is what I how I read it. Too. Yeah. Now, it's been that that's out of the Scientology hasn't really been in the news as much these days. Um, that's more of a they like to 2000s. keep it that way. Well, yes, um, but I feel like there was more scrutiny like daily happening at the height of you know Tom Cruise and and all of that. But I guess I wouldn't put it out of the realm of possibility. But my suspicion is that it's just a interesting coincidence, but an, an interesting one to. For, for the reader to to point out it's sure. certainly a connection i hadn't made uh no, at, at all but it was it was an interesting it was an interesting uh angle to to think about uh anyway so that is a a real wrap on today's episode of waypoint radio <laughs> if you want more from waypoint you can follow us on twitter at waypoint facebook and youtube waypoint vice you can follow me on twitter at rob zachney ricardo where can people follow you at a underscore cardo underscore appears patrick at patrick Klopik. Ren. At Ren or Raven. You can also check out what we published on waypoint.vice.com. Uh, be sure and read Trone Dowd's piece on uh, Hi-Fi Rush and why it feels like such a welcome throwback to an era that major publishers kind of helped kill. Uh, so so be sure and check that out on waypoint.vice.com and thanks to waypoint plus we've been able to have a bunch of fun streams lately uh patrick and i did a speaking of dead space did a really fun stream mm-hmm. playing both the dead space versions uh sort simultaneously of side side. it was so much fun i think we're <laughs> yeah. gonna keep doing that too yeah it was a delight 
so that was that was one thing. Uh, I, we haven't actually worked out our plan for this week. Uh, how are how are the dwarves going? Do we want more dwarf <laughs> fortressing? We, we have new dwarves. Yeah. Listen, the new we what have happened to the old dwarves? So the old dwarves. Don't worry about a, ne- it. <laughs> a necromancer just so happened to live within moderate distance of the <laughs> fort, and so uh, some guys showed up. We also have a new fort uh, on my computer, uh, which we struggled to visit for parsec reasons last time. There's also, uh, and it hopefully will be up soon, is a is what I would call an engaging stream. Uh, where 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 Kato and I spent a, a good two hours <laughs> checking out Kato's fortress, and Patrick was there for the beginning while we watched the Xbox showcase, and I think we all learned a lot about e- ourselves and each other. <laughs> That's beautiful. I think the stairs are beautiful, Kato. Don't Thank let you. anyone bully Thank you. you. I think it makes designing. sense. It makes tactical sense. I agree. <laughs> I think I think sometimes things do need to be designed for things other than siege tactics, though. I regret to say, like, look. I wish the whole world could be designed like Trace Italian forts. I wish I could live in one, but I do recognize probably not a sound municipal planning uh, uh, mm. like direction. Stairs weren't even the qualm. <laughs> Stairs weren't the qualm. Uh, before we go, uh, Rob, you were not here for this part, but I had asked our, our wonderful listeners, I, w- I wanted to chart a course to 2,000 reviews on iTunes. Think we can do it. We're at like 1.7. We've rolled over to 1.8. I promised people I would read these as they as they post them. So I'm going to run through these really quick. If uh, if you want to join the chorus, you know, just go over to iTunes and, and review it. I really enjoy this. <laughs> the last, the most recent one we had before this run was a one-star review from Jake Buddy. This is not a games podcast. A stain on the industry, which is just, you know what, thanks, Jake. <laughs> that's, that's the funniest wow. fucking shit I've ever heard. Amazing. <laughs> so the one of the first ones after that, I'm going a little bit out of order, was from Cursed Beef, which is a great name, who wrote, this is not a games podcast, a stain on the industry with the upper and lower case. Just <laughs> this is extremely good. Either. Thank you, Cursed Beef. That is not that's a cursed amazing. review. That's amazing. Uh, uh, Gienko, great banner and insights into the gaming industry. Uh, Dave Provost, uh, I've been listening to the podcast since I had to download them on my ClickWheel iPod, and this is one of the best. Fun and funny while afraid wow. to talk about the real issues out there. Relatable, yet still offering a unique pers- perspective that you've never considered before. Don't hesitate to check it out. Um, tanks, please. My favorite home improvement podcast, a serialized <laughs> drama about Rob's descent into madness. Uh, Nathan Hines. Listen to this pod if you want insightful discussion of games. Truly changed how I thought about games, about politics, about life. Truly worth your time. Please listen. Fuck capitalism. Go home. Which they put in as FCGH. That rules. (laughs) That I've not seen that before. That is clever. (laughs) Getting around the system. Uh, Deja Ju. Five-star podcast. Five-star runtimes. If you want a podcast about video games, this is that. If you want a podcast where the rest of the cast tries to prevent one Mr. Rob Zachney from turning his apartment into a Grover Haas Mark II, this is also that. He's got contractors. Uh, He's got contractors. He's not trying to do it shoot, himself. Well, that's just, I think, kind of, that's called enabling. Uh, Jay Morgoth, my favorite gaming podcast. No other gaming podcasts have been so consistent and informative. Even without Austin, Waypoint continues to help me look at media in brand new ways. Their deep dives on all things media have not only inspired me to do my own podcast, but continue to really think about the media I consume. Five star. Oh, I've got to click this to get the full review. Five star runtimes always uh, deserved. Uh, uh, Emily uh, BD Cats, five star podcast, five star everything. 
Why uh, Waypoint Radio release days are the best days. I look forward to equally in-depth, insightful discussions of games and industry news and tangents, question bucket dives, 12-foot skeleton updates, home reno woes, etc. I had little gaming experience when I started listening to this podcast years ago. Uh, do, 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 do. Uh, and since then, I've become better equipped to approach new games, try game genres I might not have picked before, and evaluate why something does or doesn't click for me. That's 100% because of the fine folks at Waypoint Radio. Give it a listen. That is delightful. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, uh, Ziobi, uh, what's good, Internet? I'm not going to lie. I miss Austin Walker's voice here a lot. And as such, I've marked this down as a solid seven stars to just five. Still indispensable twice-weekly conversations on games. He, he had me in the first half. I'm not going to lie. Thank you, uh, Ziobi. Uh, Mr. Clayton, I'm hands down, one of the best in-depth discussions on games in the gaming industry. I look forward to the show every week, but especially around the holidays to hear that sweet intro song. Uh, Patty Cake uh, EXE, Rob is my spirit guide. Uh, Zach of the Wood came for the deep discussion of the games industry, stayed for the 20-hour discussion of BBC's 1995 adaptation of Jane Austen's Pride <laughs> and Prejudice. I feel like it's been long enough that yeah. we might have new listeners that aren't aware of that. Is that off on the it's Be on, Good and Be Good? Yeah, it's be on Be and Good be, and Rewatch It. The, the, just sitting there. It. Okay. I do think <laughs> at some point when we have like a holiday, we might just need to like spam the feed with all five of those yeah. <laughs> just to put them get them in, back into the main back rotation in the canon. yeah we're taking them yeah out of put legends. it into the mainline feed uh some, oh, sorry go ahead ren i was just saying as someone who wasn't on those here's my pitch on those when i was a housekeeper uh as a as a college student i would just fucking i, I had a week where i just listened to all of those it was it was excellent it was an excellent week where i just watched pride and prejudice and listened to the longest fucking podcast <laughs> i've ever played i just walked from a watched from a distance and every time they were like time to go and report record a podcast did you guys finish no i'm like oh okay all right it's just we got speed <laughs> keep going um uh nyg uh mq29 uh feels like you're hanging out with some of your friends chatting about games uh connor whalen come for the video game talk news stay for a conversation on kitchen appliances fast food speaker systems etc uh strodel five-star runtimes uh al Na, uh do you like games and stoves and coffee and Kato, then this is the podcast <laughs> for you. In all seriousness, this is one of two, maybe two podcasts I try to listen to the moment it comes out. I always have a good time and look forward to it. Uh, and then a last from 9865. This has to be a bad interpretation of this from this website. Um, my favorite podcast, uh, hands down. Uh, thanks to everyone uh, writing in. I will read yours uh, if you uh, leave a, a podcast as we make the march to 2,000 reviews over on iTunes. I super appreciate everyone's that done it so far. Hope you enjoyed the show, Jake, buddy. <laughs> Got some more good stuff coming up. I want to know. I want to know what prompted it, I, Jake. I, if you're if you're still hate listening, it is possible. Right it is possible. Not everyone wants to hear about my speakers and kitchen appliances as much as they are. <laughs> but that seemed real. Like there, there is a hey. There's too much of this talk. It's a little much for me. I don't. You know what I mean? But like that was pretty specific. <laughs> I think. I think. It's because of the uh, recent layoffs of the industry, because because there was that person, there was a person who tweeted at us, who's like a weird uh, right wing dude uh, mm -hmm. who responded to uh, a tweet. Of, oh, I did uh, see this. They were like, yeah, was uh, the this was the one that was shit. like. 35 um, only 35 likes get ready for the layoffs which is right the and then i looked i looked at that account he liked his own tweet he liked his own tweet and then the other person who liked it was like a lawyer who advises the tucker carlson, carlson show. show i was like it's a producer for tucker carlson and i was looking what? i was like oh god god patrick i'm so glad we went on the same journey because i was talking <laughs> with my girlfriend at the time and i was like can i show you this i feel like i'm losing my fucking mind oh god 
I won't just, be the likes that get us laid off, dork. It'll be everything I, else. I, okay, hold on. I blocked them on the Waypoint account. Can I, you can look up who you blocked, right? Yeah. Well, I can tell you who it is. They them. added me, too. I'm going to stop uh, recording. We don't need to shout them out if... Uh, it, 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 uh, we'll, we'll investigate this later. But anyway, Rob, take, take us yeah. out. But yes, I, I noticed that too, Ren. We both went down the same rabbit hole. <laughs> oh, well, hey, so funny. whether you love or hate us, we've got more good stuff coming up. Uh, like my turn on the Green Knight. The only thing I know about it, I assume it's Arthurian, but the only thing that Patrick has told me is there's gonna be some Dev Patel cranking hog. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go! Woo! Put it in 4K. <laughs> the, and also, someone wrote into me after I made that, and they were like. If you like that, there's a whole show where he does that all the time. And I was like, oh, okay. Wait, what? Excuse me? Oh, that's not how I remember the newsroom. Yeah. <laughs> no, not that. Some other television show. Oh, wow. Uh, so if that sounds good, because that's a Waypoint Plus podcast. If that sounds good or you just want more Waypoint, you can go to waypointplus.com and subscribe. Not only do you get access to our premium feed, but you're also helping support Waypoint and everything else we do here. And if you want to show not just support, but zeal. Go to waypointgeneralstore.com and buy some of our fine Waypoint merch. Our theme music is by Bowen. The track is Miss You off the EP Pale Machine. Learn more at waypoint.zone slash B-O-E-N. For now, we are calling time on this Tuesday. We'll talk to you again on Friday. Till then, fuck capitalism. Sorry, (laughs) F-C-G-H. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.